identity more than we want the pure identity that God sees us as. And what happens is, is because we like our broken identity of ourselves, now all of a sudden when it comes to relating to a community, because we have our own broken identity, it's impossible to relate to a community, isn't it? Think about it. Is there anything more messy than messy people interacting with one another? It's like porcupines trying to snuggle together, right? Everyone's got like a, a sharp edge. God wants his people to define themselves according to their relationship to him. That's the main point of Pastor Daniel's message today as he continues teaching through the book of Numbers where the children of Israel are given specific instructions about how to live. That runs counter to what our culture presents to us where we're told to live for ourselves. Today, take a fresh look at what God wants for us compared to the world. Now, here's Pastor Daniel with part one of his message, Camping Map. All right, let's open up in those Bibles to the book of Numbers, chapter two, as we continue our study here through the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter two. Now, you have to think about this for a second. Why is it called the book of Numbers? Because God's doing an awful lot of numbering now, isn't he? And I think sometimes we have this idea that God is only interested in these kind of more ethereal, more mystical, and supernatural type of things. But in a lot of ways, when the rubber meets the road, God is street level. It's just real life. The first bunch of these chapters in the book of Numbers is quite specific. God cares about his people. He cares about them being organized. I think in some ways in church, we have a tendency to think that God is only moving when it's haphazard and disorganized. And if you organize it too much, then God can't be in it because God happens in a happenstance way. But the book of Numbers kind of dispels that. In chapter one, we found that God wanted to number all the able-bodied men over the age of of 20 who could go to war. Now in Numbers chapter 2, I'm calling this the camping map because God is arranging the tribes as they are to camp around the centerpiece of the children of Israel, which is that tabernacle of meeting, that tent of meeting. So think about that, that God is actually laying out for them, these are who we're going to who are going to camp on the east side. These are going to camp on the west side, the north and the south side. This is how I want to orient you around the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle of meeting. Now, what this teaches us in a lot of ways is that God wants his people to identify themselves based on God and the community. That's how they're meant to define themselves, their relationship to God, because in each case, the tabernacle of meeting is in the center, and then the community. 
And don't miss the fact that when they asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was, he said, first you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and then you do what? You love your neighbor as yourself. Because it's about God and then others, and we define ourselves based on God and the community at large. But we live in a culture that doesn't define itself that way, does it? I do a lot of this. I realized over the weekend as I was traveling and I was reflecting on things that I spend a good bit of time in my teaching here with you all having to deconstruct a culture that we live in and how it doesn't fit into what God wants. And I have to do that because in a lot of ways, we're so used to being here and living in this world that we don't actually ever call it into question, right? It's like we're just so used to, we've been raised and nurtured in, in this environment and you, don't have, you just take it for granted. This is the way it is. But then all of a sudden you read the gospel and you get a whole other view of it. It's kind of like Kierkegaardian existentialism. All of a sudden, Kierkegaard is looking at the world from a different vantage point from all the other existentialists. Now, how many of you ever read Kierkegaard? That's right, none of you, right? If you did, it put you to sleep, right? It did for me. But the idea is, is that we need to take a fresh look at the world in which we live and as it relates to how God sees the world. Because you know what our culture, you know how we define ourselves? We divide ourselves as purely individuals. Who are you and what do you want? Who are you and how do you want to live? And don't let anybody tell you that you're not allowed to live the way that you want to live. That is good old-fashioned post-enlightenment Western philosophy. It's all about the individual. Now, is that how God defines the people? No, it's completely different. It's like our culture says you are defined by who you are and what you want, and if you don't get what you want, you take your marbles and you go home, right? But the Bible says, no, we define ourselves, we define ourselves based upon who God is and how we relate to the community, and our, our individual identity is first derived from God and then the community, and what's interesting is that that's a scary thing, isn't it? See, in a lot of ways, God wants to define you differently than you define yourself. But what's interesting is that we're scared of the way God defines us because we've gotten really used to carrying around our hurts and our hang-ups and our habits and this garbage our parents gave us, and the garbage that they got from their parents, and the way other people see us. And we've gone comfortable to a self-styled identity. And then God all of a sudden says, look, you know, you're not actually not like that. Like, you are, but let me tell you who I see you. And then God starts sharing where you find out how absolutely beautiful the Lord sees us as. And we're like, yeah, I really can't see myself that way. We like a broken identity more than we want the pure identity that God sees us as. And what happens is, is because we like our broken identity of ourselves, now all of a sudden, when it comes to relating to a community, because we have our own broken identity, it's impossible to relate to a community, isn't it? Think about it. Is there anything more messy than messy people interacting with one another? It's like porcupines trying to snuggle together, right? Right? Everyone's got like a, a sharp edge. 
But God's way of organizing his people is to say, look, everything about the way that you are arranged has to do with where I am and how you exist within the greater whole of the community. And so literally, God gives them a camping map. When you move around, this is how I want you to move. This is the order I want you to march. This is where I want you to camp. You would think that since Israel had been on the Exodus journey, they pretty much moved around and assembled just about any way they felt like it. Now, all of a sudden, God is taking disorder and bringing order to it. So check it out. Numbers chapter 2, picking up in verse 1, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard. Beside the emblems of his father's house, they shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting. Now notice, they should all camp by his own standard, and, and that means a banner. Beside the emblems of his father's house, they shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting. So notice, they are divided by standards or banners, which is tribes, and then the emblems of their house. So you see it's kind of going from the whole people to a tribe to a family. But notice that each one of them, there is a distance between where they are and where the tabernacle of meeting comes from. And that's kind of an interesting thing, that there needs to be a healthy distance. Now, why is there a healthy distance? Because God is pure and the people are not. Now, I say that realizing that in the Old Testament, there is a distinction. But in the New Testament, when Jesus died, he said, it is finished. And he committed his spirit into the hands of the Father. It says that the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was ripped from top to bottom, saying, look, you can come in now. Because Jesus took care of the division between God and us by taking our impurities and covering them over, taking our stains and wiping them clean. And that's why Jesus is essential. That's why true human spirituality begins and ends with Jesus of Nazareth. Because only he can take mistakes and hurts that separate us from God, ourselves, and other people, and forgive them and wipe away the stain and not only restore the relationship, but sustain the relationship by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, the children of Israel, they needed to camp at a distance, but when Jesus died and that veil was ripped from top to bottom, that says, just come. Just come. And that's why we're here tonight, isn't it? We're saying, God, I want, to grow, I want to get close to you. And it doesn't only need to be on a Wednesday or a Sunday. or You don't need a gathering at crossroads to come into the presence of God. God doesn't say, listen, you stay away during the week because when you're at work, you know, you get all defiled. But then on Sunday, then you can be good. He never says that. He says, listen, come to me at any moment of your life. The distance between your problem and its answer is the distance between your knees and the floor or the knees and the floor of your hearts. At any moment, if you are in Christ, you have complete and total access to come to the presence of God. There is no need, there's no need for there to be a distance. God wants you so close. It's amazing. Now, this chapter, what we're going to find is that the way God has them break down is into four groups of three. 
So there's four groups of three tribes. So remember, there's 12 tribes of Israel. And we're going to see how the, the Levites play into this as well. But there's four tribes of three. Now, what's interesting is that most rabbinical tradition will tell you that the banner for the tribe of Judah was the figure of a lion. The banner or the standard for the tribe of Reuben is in the likeness of a man or a man's head. Ephraim was the figure of an ox or a calf, and the tribe of Dan was the figure of an eagle. So there's these four pictures of a lion, a man, an ox, and an eagle. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because if you enjoy kind of more what I would consider to be mystical theology, or if you enjoy searching down references, what you'll find is that these four images, they actually pop up in a number of places. In the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 7, the living creature was like a lion, and the second living creature was like a calf, and the third living creature had the face of a man, and the fourth living creature was a flying eagle. You get these same pictures, of course, in the pictures of the angels in the book of Ezekiel. And to make matters more interesting, most commentators would tell you that each gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, shows a different face of who Jesus is. Do you ever think about it that way? Matthew's gospel portrays Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. It was written for a Jewish audience. All these Hebrew references. Mark's gospel shows Jesus as an ox. The idea of Jesus as the humble servant. Luke's gospel shows Jesus as a man, the perfect man. Of course, John's gospel shows Jesus, in a sense, as an eagle, the God-man. Now, I say this is more mystical, it's a little bit more experimental because when you start interpreting these things in that way, you realize that there's kind of no end to that type of interpretation. You're kind of off on fits of fancy. And as a teacher, I realize that I, I want to expose you to that because th I think there's something there. But I also realize that I don't want to overstate it because when you start going down that road, you can do that at nauseum. You can just make up anything you want and you can say, that's what it means. So, but I do think it's very fascinating that each one of these standards, which is the division of the children of Israel around the tabernacle, have these pictures, and these pictures show up in other places in your Bible, and when you start to read, you're like, oh, it, does this all fit together in a unique way? And I think in this case, it does, although I'm not sure that that was what it was supposed to be. Does that make sense? So it's something to explore I remember as a young believer, I was listening to a pastor who I enjoyed very, very much, and he was very, very bent on, on this type of more symbolic, esoteric, mystical interpretations. And, but he told them as it was like, this is the way you interpret this. And as I've gotten older and studied more, I'm like, you know, I don't know that you should do it that way. Because you realize that if you start interpreting everything and symbolizing everything, then you never actually come to a, an interpretation. It's just a who has an idea, and we'll just say that's what it is. But I do think it's fascinating that Jesus is not monolithic in that way. He's a man, but he's so much more than a man. And each gospel has different reasons for showing Jesus in a different way. Matthew, Jesus says the fulfillment 
of the Old Testament scriptures. Mark, Jesus as the servant of all. Luke as the ultimate man, the God man. And of course, John's gospel, Jesus is fully God, fully man. It's very powerful when you think about it. Now, we're going to read through this and we'll see how everybody is organized. And I think it's, it all runs on a formula. You'll see. We're going to hear this repetition. But I do want to make the case one more time to remind you that this reads almost like a, uh, a Lego rule book. It's kind of like, you're here, this goes here, this goes here, this goes here, this goes here. And I do want to make the case that I believe God works both logically and linearly, and then he also works completely randomly. And I think there's some of us who are logical and linear, and we want God to always work linearly, and that's a struggle, and we have to walk by faith when he's not. I think there's a lot of us who don't want God to be linear, because we're not linear, and we struggle when God uses structure in our lives. And so what I love about the Lord is that no matter where you find yourself, what, you have to learn how to trust the Lord when God is different than you are. So if you're here today and and you just love God just doing something out of the blue, then you'll be like, I just don't understand why this is in the Bible, because God is actually quite structured in the way God works. He's not a God of confusion. He's a God of what? Of order. And he's ordering the people for efficiency. That's not a bad thing. And if you're here and you love this kind of stuff, then you're just going to love it. So I don't even have to talk about it. But when God does something random later on, like when a donkey talks to Balaam, then we'll talk about how God can work randomly. Sound good? Amen. Okay. So verse 3, look at what it says. It says, on the east side, toward the rising of the sun, those of the standard of the forces with Judah shall camp according to their armies. And Nashon, the son of Amminadab, shall be the leader of the children of Judah. And his army was numbered at 74,600. Those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar. And Nathanel, the son of Zuar, shall be the leader of the children of Issachar. And his army was numbered at 54,400. Verse 7, then comes the tribe of Zebulun, and Eliab, the son of Helan, shall be the leader of the children of Zebulun. And the army was numbered at 57,400. All who were numbered according to their armies of the forces with Judah, 186,400. These shall break camp first. Now, so on the east side of the tabernacle. Now, notice it says... From the rising of the sun sits Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Now, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun of Jacob's sons were the fourth, fifth, and sixth of the six sons born to Jacob by Leah. So if you're traveling with us to the book of Genesis, you'll remember that. Now, I know that you know this, that in Jesus's culture and in the culture that this was, the east side was given a side of prominence because the sun rises in the east and it sets in the west. When Solomon goes to build the temple, it opens to the what? To the east. So it was a symbolic thing. This is where the light is coming from. And so the fact that Judah is given this place of prominence on the east, along with Zebulun and Issachar, is important. Why? Why is Judah important? Anybody know? Because Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. I already gave you the answer if you were listening. 
So Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. See, all through the Bible, in that culture, the firstborn son was given the place of primacy or importance. But out of Jacob's sons, Judah gets the place. And Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. And so it's interesting, all the way back here now, in Numbers chapter 2, when they're camping around the tabernacle, Judah gets the closest place on the east side to the tabernacle of meeting. And we find, as I said before, the banner was that of a lion. And according to verse 9, the group of people there was 186,000 400. That's all three. And they are the first to break camp. So when it's time to go, the tribe of Judah is leading this whole thing. He's leading with Zebulun and Issachar coming after. Now, in verse 10, we get the south side. Look at what it says. On the south side shall be the standard of the forces with Reuben, according to their armies. And the leader of the children of Reuben shall be Elazar, the son of Shedeur, and his army was numbered at 46,500. Those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Simeon, and the leader of the children of Simeon shall be Shelemiel, the son of Zeradishadai, and his army was numbered at 59,300. And then comes the tribe of Gad, and the leader of the children of Gad shall be Elisaphath, and the son of Reuel. And his army shall be numbered at 46,650, all who were numbered according to their armies of the forces with Reuben, 151,450. They shall be the second to break camp. So now on the south side, Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. Now don't miss, Reuben, of course, was Jacob's firstborn son to Leah, Right? Then after that, he's joined by Sibion, who is the second son. And then, of course, then you have Gad, who was the first son of Leah's maid, Zilpah. Now, you'll notice we've seen the fourth, five, and sixth sons in the first camp. Now we see the first and second, but you'll notice that Levi, who is the third son, is not there. And we're going to talk about him in a second. So I want you just to notice. So on the east side and on the south side, you have all of Leah's sons minus Levi, because we're going to get to him in a second and how he's going to be arranged. And again, 151,400. So all this is, is it's the numbers that we found in chapter one, and now they're arranged by east side, south side, we're going to see west, uh, west and north side, all around the tabernacle, meaning all the numbers are the same, but now we're just getting the camping diagram. So it's pretty simple. Now in verse 17, look at what it says. And the tabernacle of meeting shall move out with the camp of the Levites in the middle of the camps as they camp, so they shall move out everyone in his place by their standards. Now, now we get the Levites. We're going to see them more at the end of the chapter, but think about what goes on when it's time to break camp. First, the one that Judah's leading on the east side, then the one that Reuben is leading on the south side, and then the Levites with the tabernacle of meeting, and then you're going to have the other two sets of tribes. So not only is God supposed to be at the center when they're stationary, God is supposed to be at the center as they travel and as they go on out to war. Jesus is Today, Pastor Daniel reminded us that God works logically, in a linear way, and randomly. 
We struggle with his ways when they don't fit with ours. As we followed God's people as they were given orders to protect and strengthen them, God's directives were loving. We're confident that today's message has blessed and encouraged you. Jesus is Real Radio is impacting communities all over the United States. It's even reaching those in prison. It's a wonderful ministry that you can be a part of. We'd like to invite you to partner with us. Through the month of April, we're encouraging you to pray about financially supporting Jesus is Real Radio. Your financial support helps us continue and expand the mission of proclaiming that Jesus is real. This month, we'd like to say thank you for supporting Jesus is Real Radio by sending you a Jesus is Real Radio coffee mug. Every morning when you fill up to start the day, you'll be reminded to pray for the team here at Jesus is Real Radio. Check out JesusIsRealRadio.com and click on Partner. There you'll find an option to make your donation and receive your Jesus is Real Radio coffee mug. Place a marker in your Bibles and join us next time as Pastor Daniel reminds us why God doesn't exist to give us everything we want. The children of Israel were challenged to overcome their own desires for God's plan, just as we are. Well, that's all the time we have for today's broadcast. On behalf of Pastor Daniel and the entire production team, we invite you to join us again for the next edition of Jesus is Real Radio.